First news with Keeler in the morning on WIBX and WIBX950.com. So you talk about the long hauler uh, symptoms that uh, after a prolonged stay in the ICU, patient A, this is the person that they're, they're tracking, uh, had recovered and was ready to go home, but doctors found he was infected with a deadly drug-resistant fungus. Canida oris, or C. oris, discovered a little over a decade ago as one of the world's most feared hospital microbes. The bloodstream infection is the most frequently detected germ in critical care units around the world and has a mortality rate of 70%. Oh, wow. That sounds fun, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Uh, Dr. Shemaleski is on the line right now. Doc, good morning. Good morning to you, and uh, happy post-Memorial Day. Um, just talking about this, um, this, this is post COVID, but, um, this, this fungus that, um, is a real killer that they, they, they have no drugs to prevent, uh, the, the fungus from spreading. That's a little scary. Well, it's one of many that, uh, we're constantly (laughs) being afraid of, uh, you know, vancomycin-resistant enterococcus, uh, Clostridium difficile, uh, pathogenic E. coli, and the list goes on and on and on. Uh, we've been really fortunate since the end of, well, before World War II, uh, to have a lot of medications, uh, especially the antibiotics, that have been able to help us and tide us over for at least uh, three-quarters of a century. Yeah. And remember... Uh, one uh, researcher was saying that we are really uh, just about to go, or we are, in the post-antibiotic era. And that's a scary thing. Uh, these uh, different organisms have, have been out there before time immemorial or developed from other ones uh, some uh, centuries ago, and they're here with us, and they're a part of our planet. And we don't have any way to uh, combat them. That's the, uh, the scary part. Well, uh, we don't, but we do. Normally, when we think about combating, uh, we think in terms of, uh, you know, especially uh, drugs and surgery. Yeah. And, uh, you know, ever since uh, the last couple of centuries with the development of surgery and then in the 20th century, the development of uh, different medications for all kinds of kidney disorders and heart problems, et cetera, et cetera, you know, we've uh, really been blessed. But you have to understand, well, you do, that... uh, the immune system is our, our, the main thing that keeps us alive. Right. Uh, it's the innate factors that allow us to fight things. That's why I have patients come to me and they'll say, gosh, you know, I have this and that. You know, why did I get sick? And my reply is, you know, I think you have to ask yourself, why am I healthy so often? Right. That's a, uh, I guess you're looking at it as if the cup is uh, is half full as opposed to half empty. Um <laughs> And is this what they call super germs? And, and hospitals have, have dealt with this, uh, where these these super germs get, uh, there's an outbreak, and they, they have a very difficult time containing it. Yes, they're uh, what we call them super bugs, or if you yeah. want to call them super germs for sure. And uh, in uh, most hospitals, or many hospitals, uh, what happens is uh, if there is uh, an antibiotic that's going to be prescribed, it has to go through a pharmacy review on there to make sure that they've done the testing and that it is the appropriate antibiotic. 
So uh, physicians have really clamped down on the use of antibiotics, which I think is uh, welcomed by the osteopathic profession. The other thing is some years ago, uh, the CDC, they sent out a brochure to doctors all across the United States, and they said, doctors, please, will you stop using all these antibiotics, except Mm. in areas where it's indicated. This is from the CDC years ago. And we know from studies that people who have ear infections and sinusitis and bronchitis uh, and many other infections, stomach problems and so forth, uh, they should not be treated with antibiotics unless you really know there is something there. And the other thing is that if you do have things like an ear infection, a sinus, a sore throat, a bronchitis, or stomach problems or whatever, and even if you do identify bacteria, guess what? Your immune system probably, depending on the source, 80 to 90% of the time will take care of it without the use of antibiotics. Mm. You know, I think what, what happens is we, is because I've been in that situation where I've tried to get an antibiotic when I had a, a cold and it feels like it's a sinus infection and the doctor doesn't doesn't want to give the give the antibiotic because they say there's real really no evidence of it of you just have a bad cold, and the antibiotic will not help you. Uh, correct. In fact, uh, I, I joke. I don't joke, actually, but the uh, virus uh, actually does a backstroke in a pool of antibiotics. But having said <laughs> that, there have been studies where even if you do wait, if you know you have a bacterial infection, if you wait a few days or so, as long as you're not clinically deteriorating on yep. there, yep. it allows your immune system to be activated. And it's been shown that the antibody and the immune cell response is much better if you wait rather than right away uh, hit the bacterial infection with right. an antibiotic. All right. I want to ask about uh, specifically uh, what, are, what have you been seeing from patients who have di- – Andrew has an interesting story on this – with long-hauler sy- uh, symptoms. Even people who didn't have a severe case of the virus – are dealing with these symptoms that are lingering on. What have you seen specifically, and what success have you had in treating it? Um, It's interesting. The the gamut of uh, symptoms there really runs across the board, but uh, the biggest symptoms from the top down, uh, from the head down, let's say, are basically uh, some confusion at times, but more an inattentiveness or inability to concentrate. Uh, or finish a task, uh, memory loss, uh, depression, mood changes, uh, and some anxiety or insomnia. And going down uh, the list on there, uh, pe- people will have upper respiratory symptoms mm-hmm. where they, they have a, 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 maybe a, a sore throat or sinus problems. But usually, the uh, actually, uh, they will have a, an aberration in their ability to smell and taste. Yeah. Uh, where sometimes things will smell like ammonia or garbage. I just had a recent patient who has a difficult time uh, finding anything to eat because everything just makes nauseated. And then uh, because it's a multifactorial disease, uh, the COVID can cause inflammation, or especially pericarditis and myocarditis. Uh, most of the time, those things will resolve. And uh, when we do EKGs in the office, uh, we've seen occasional uh, arrhythmias, they're usually minor, uh, but uh, really no cases of myocardial inflammation of the yeah, heart. Yeah. And then, of course, in the lungs there, you have a shortness of breath and difficulty breathing, uh, what we call pleurisy. And sometimes uh, the, the abdomen and the lower ribs, people, it'll bother them. Uh, 
and uh, and a minority of the patients will have some GI upset, uh, like diarrhea especially. Mm -hmm. And then in the skin, uh, people can have some different rashes. They call it the COVID toes or various blotchy rashes that come and go, or little uh, white uh, plaque areas yeah. in the mouth. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, kidney problems. Um, so far, I haven't seen anything serious in terms of the kidney problems at all. But uh, one of the things that uh, I find interesting is the people that come to me, uh, when you look at them, they are able to walk in. I have very few people that come in with a cane and difficulty mm -hmm. with the disequilibrium and so forth. And what, the reason I'm bringing this up is that on the outside, unless they're actively coughing or slightly short of breath, uh, you, you would almost minimize their symptoms and say, oh, you just had a virus. It'll right, go away. right. But these people are telling you that it has been a life-changing event. It just doesn't show on the outside. How do you? How are you able to differentiate between the people who say or blaming whatever they're feeling right now on COVID, and and maybe had there been no COVID, they still would have had the the, the symptoms. So how do you figure out that it is related to COVID? Well, I think you have to put on your Sherlock Holmes yeah, hat yeah. and uh, take a look at everything and see. Like one patient I had. A lot of her symptoms really that related to things like fibromyalgia and depression uh, really predated uh, her diagnosis with COVID. Mm. And I'm talking about, uh, you know, pre-February uh, 2020 sure. or even yeah. if you want to go back to October 2019 in China. Uh, so you have to check that. But the other thing is when people come to us, aside from a complete physical exam and a history and checking their medications, uh, we do uh, some pretty extensive blood work to check for the different organ systems, and we uh, do a chest X-ray, uh, and in the office we do EKG and look right there. And so from that and the symptoms and everything, you put it all together. Yeah, yeah. If it looks like a duck, sounds like a duck, it's probably a duck. Probably a duck. Uh, Andrew, you're, uh, you're the person you ran into. Yeah, so it was a friend of mine who was asking about you know, the Falcon Clinic, and I highly recommended it. And he said, uh, I saw him on Friday morning, and he seemed very energetic, and he told me so, and he had been treated that morning, not expecting to be, and he said night and day difference, like a switch. Uh, he was no longer lethargic, tired, uh, uh, full of energy, so he was he was very satisfied, very happy. What did you inject him with, Doc? Um <laughs> Uh, a lot, a lot of compassion and uh, a lot of osteopathic treatment. All right, and uh, well, and that's the uh, that is the, the, the allowing the body to to figure out that it can fix itself. Right. You know, it's interesting that with the long haulers, there uh, a lot of studies are going on uh, for all of these different symptoms of shortness of breath and, like I said, you know, the brain fog and all this other stuff. And we like to put names on things because uh, it does help us at times to. Uh, direct uh, the types of treatments that we have. But two things that come to mind are uh, POTS and MCAS, uh, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, or POTS, uh, where people can actually have their blood pressure drop some and they can get some palpitations, shortness of breath, and weakness. Uh, that's seen in a number of people. And then the other thing is uh, a theory has been uh, touted, and I recently read an NIH paper, in which uh, you have MCAS, or mast cell activation syndrome. And these are mast cells part of our initial defense system that uh, uh, causes uh, our mast cells to make uh, histamine. Yeah. 
you know, there are a number of things with that, including uh, production of sputum and congestion in the nose and so forth. And uh, so because of these things, people are talking about uh, autonomic dysregulation or dysfunction. In fact, there is a syndrome there, autonomic dys- dysfunction. The nice thing about the osteopathic approach is that we try to normalize those things uh, by uh, doing various things for lymphatic drainage and uh, also our hands-on treatment of uh, various nerve centers in the body. And I think that's where uh, a lot of uh, our success comes. Um, We've been having people, especially with, uh, let's say, brain fog. Uh, Andrew mentioned the the energetics. Yep. when you get a backlog of lymphatic tissue in, I'm sorry, lymphatic fluid in the brain, uh, it kind of clogs up the system. And so you get changes of pH and oxygenation and all those uh, chemicals that we learned about in chemistry. Uh, when you do these techniques on the head, and some of them are massaging techniques, some are uh, stroking, some are tapping techniques, some are pumping techniques, they're called uh, uh, cranial, uh, cranial techniques. And uh, when you open up the valve, at least in the brain, Mm -hmm. uh, what happens is you get the lymphatic fluids and venous fluids flowing again, kind of cleaning out the areas between the cells and the fluid there. And uh, people notice a big response just with that. Uh, Before we let you go, uh, Tom in Yorkville with a uh, question. Tom, you're on with Dr. Shemaleski. Doc, do you have any experience with Lyme disease? Yes, I do. Because a friend of mine this week, his, I was talking to his son. It's an eight-year battle with Lyme disease, mm. and he is going through. COVID looks, is like a hangover compared to this kid's gone through. Wow. Well, uh, uh, yes, I, I have uh, seen Lyme disease. I have diagnosed Lyme disease. I have treated Lyme disease. Uh, let me give you the, the medical party line. Uh, and This, again, is from CDC and a few other places. Uh, that uh, there, you know, th- there is no uh, long-term uh, infection with Lyme disease, and uh, I kind of agree with that. Uh, other than the fact that there are clinics all over the United States that are uh, are touting this, and and they're using all different kinds of things. I'm not being critical of them. What I'm saying is that I I think, and this is my personal opinion. Uh, is that while, when people have Lyme disease, if they were appropriately treated, uh, chances of them having lingering uh, Lyme disease, I think is more a, uh, let me use a medical term, the discombobulation of their physiologic system. In other words, they're having lingering sy- symptoms where the body has been deregulated or dysregulated, just not working right. And that, again, gets me back to the autonomic nervous system and uh, approaches that we use. Now, having said that, uh, I do keep a, a, an open uh, mind on this because uh, nothing is 100%. You guys have been talking on the Keeler Show about vaccinations, but they're not 100% right. either. They're right. anywhere from 70 to 95%, depending on one yep. or two vaccinations mm-hmm. or like, you know, and so forth. But the same thing with Lyme disease. Uh, we have some pretty good uh, antibiotics that can uh, cure Lyme disease. But do some of them escape? Uh, they probably do. They probably do. But that doesn't mean that the immune system won't be involved in there. Uh, so I have a number of people who have these uh, ling- 
lingering symptoms there from uh, post-Lyme disease, and they seem to do quite well with supplementation, other forms of therapy, sometimes even counseling, uh, some antidepressants and all this other stuff. But again, I use osteopathic treatments in addition to medications. And uh, I don't know, the people keep coming back for some reason. I hope it's because I'm helping them. So Tom is, um, and the uh, maybe they should reach out to the Falcon Clinic. Um, I will tell my friend, Yeah, but yeah. listen to him. He's been in this for eight years and he's like, it's like, Listening to a doctor, the way he explains everything. Right. What what symptoms? I will tell him. What symptoms does the the kid go through? Oh my God, he's lost like eighty pounds. His stomach wow. constantly hurts. Yeah. I mean, just about everything. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, uh, uh, FalconClinic dot com or they're located in Washington Mills. Tom, thank you. Thanks. All right. Thank you. Uh, that lime. I got to tell you that a lot of the ticks are carrying um, are carrying that Lyme disease. It's it is something to be worried about. I feel like you know putting that the the off and that poison on your on your skin. Some will say, "Well, you know that's that stuff is dangerous." I think what you're preventing is a tick bite, which is more which could be more dangerous, right? Yes, and uh, the other thing is just being uh, bitten by a tick doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get Lyme disease right. because if I remember, uh, it's only like 20% of the deer ticks. Not every tick, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ixodes, that's the species of the type of tick, and it's a, a little tiny, uh, looks, uh, oh, my gosh, <laughs> it's uh, about the size of a sesame seed, for mm-hmm. those of you know what a sesame seed is if you ever had a bagel. And uh, that's in the unengorged state. But then when they do uh, latch on and they have a blood meal from us, then then they do get bigger yeah. uh, quite, quite a bit. Uh, but not like the the uh, not like the dog ticks. And mm-hmm. there are some other. There's a wolf tick and a few others. Actually, a bunch of them uh, in New York State. Uh, the other thing is that if you've uh, uh, if if there has not been a, a engorgement by the tick and the cdc is even saying uh that the tick needs to be on your system for 24 to 36 hours i don't know how they ever got to that because if i saw a tick i would want it off immediately yeah pretty quickly yeah yeah but uh, usually if there's been some exposure on there uh one dose of an antibiotic may may help you know just to uh prevent if there's been exposure to the tick but then there is a at least a, a three day course of doxycycline, and then there are other depending on how bad it is yep, uh, IV yep. antibiotics that can be used too. All right, uh, Doc, uh, we appreciate your time. The Falcon Clinic is located in uh, Washington Mills. Uh, All we, right, we appreciate your time today. Thank you. Okay, thank you. You guys uh, stay safe. Yep, Bye. you do the same.